Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check us out on patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. I've got a few longer pieces there as well as I've basically been sharing a lot of uh, newer new watches to me as far as older movies at a Patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. This episode of the podcast, I'm uh, being, I'm uh, talking once again to a filmmaker I had on a couple of years ago. Uh, after his watching his film Black Wake, as well as his short film uh, Slap Face, and he's coming back to talk about a few film projects that he's done during quarantine, during this time of social isolation, uh, during the COVID pandemic. And I'm pleased to be joined to talk about, talk to him about these projects with Jeremiah Kipp. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Brian. It's always great being on your show. So I, this, I, I, I think my first thing, um, the first thing I want to ask, uh, there are four sh- there are four shorts that you've sent me over the past uh, couple weeks and stuff like that. Uh, all of them are essentially adaptations or performances. I guess is probably the 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 more appropriate way of putting it of uh, literary works, whether it is um, plays or poetry. What was the <coughs> besides? Uh, feeling besides giving everybody something to do during this particular time, what was the inspiration behind doing doing this right now? Well, it all started with a conversation that I was having with a really extremely talented artist and singer songwriter and filmmaker named Lindsay Cat. Lindsay and I were talking about how all these um, actors in the very beginning of the pandemic once everything was getting shut down were trying to find something to do and they were you know filming themselves doing monologues and trying to remind themselves why they were in the acting profession in the first place and Lindsay and I were brainstorming a little bit being like wouldn't it be something if uh, we got all of them to uh, self-tape and edit them together into these new pieces and stories. And we were talking about different stories that we might want to tell. I woke up the next morning and I was thinking about a project that I'd been wanting to do for a really long time. And it just never got going, which was I'd always wanted to do Edgar Allan Poe's The Bells with a bunch of actors. But I was thinking it was going to be like against a white, you know, Steve Jobs type of background. And, uh, it would kind of cut back and forth between all these actors. And I reread the poem and thought that the bells certainly spoke to how I felt uh, at that time. The bells uh, is, a, is, a, is an incredibly eerie poem. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's about, um, I mean, it's, it's very uh, sonorous and sound driven, but it also goes through these stages of, uh, of feelings ranging from cautious optimism to fear of death. And uh, I thought, wow, that speaks to the wildly conflicting feelings that we're all having right now. 
So I, I posted on social media saying, uh, hey, I'm thinking about uh, doing a short film of Edgar Allan Poe's The Bells. Would anybody be interested? And, you know, I was kind of thinking four or five, six people might be interested. But within like 20 minutes, I had too many people, you know, like there were, you know, I, I had to start turning people down. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I said, wow, you know, there, there, there's a real need for this. So then, you know, I enlisted an editor who I work with all the time named, uh, Katie Dillon. Katie edited Black Wake and she's currently editing the, uh, the feature length version of Slapface, which we, which we squeezed in just before the pandemic. We shot it last fall. Uh, but, uh, but we were in between cuts of, uh, Slapface, uh, the feature and, uh, Katie was available to, um, to cut together the bells. So like 20 actors submitted their work and then, um, we had to cut like seven of them for various reasons, you know, like we, we had to make a decision. Do we want to include everybody or do we want to kind of create a piece that can stand in and of itself? And like, we can organize the actors in a, in a way that feels thematically relevant to the poem. Uh, so we did cut actors. We did, we couldn't use everybody. And, uh, and it wound up, you know, we wound up like kind of following the thread of the poem where it starts out with actors who were performing with a cautious optimism mm-hmm. and then moving our way through uh, performances that were um, increasingly addled and frightened until it got to the end when characters seemed like monsters or isolated in terror. Mm-hmm. I thought that it enabled all of the actors to speak to how they felt in uh, March, 2020, which is when we made the piece, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, how do you feel right now? How do your feelings plug into this poem and just find the truth in that? And then there, there wound up being a lot of truth in it. Um, And we were really happy with the piece. It wound up being like, for the most part, actors doing a direct address into the camera. Right. Um, Which is what we asked for. You know, a couple of them went for crazier choices, like Ilaria Maldetsi, wonderful actress, like encased herself in shadows and kind of played it mm-hmm. like some troll under the bridge and was very frightening, you know. But for the most part, like people just kind of like chose a background and, and did a direct dress. Yeah. And we also didn't know what they'd be capable of doing. So we made it as simple as possible. We just said, like, set up your cell phone and do a direct address into the camera. Okay. Yeah, I was I was kind of wondering if there was a particular particular direction that you gave each all of the actors in terms of wardrobe, in terms of how they approach the material, and you know, just just sort because of, you you mentioned some of the the different ways that people approach just talking to the camera in terms of lighting in terms of um just the uh different the the different ways they approach the uh piece was there a particular direction uh that was given to people for the first one no for the bells i encouraged people to make bold choices and go for it i also didn't credit myself as a director jennifer plotsky and i the two people who put it together we we said produced by i didn't feel Particularly comfortable taking a directed by credit because 
I felt like I wasn't really directing the piece. It felt more like a, like a community service piece mm-hmm. or something like that, where it was like allowing people to express themselves. And yet the directing did t- find its form once we started working on the edit, because mm-hmm. we had to make, we had to make style choices and directorial choices. Like one actress in particular gave a great performance, but it was tonally so different than everybody else that we uh, couldn't include her. And, uh, and incidentally, she was supposed to be in the next piece, uh, Jumper, but then she got sick, which is something that happens in the time of uh, coronavirus. She's recovered. Everything is fine. But uh, but that was one where, like, we did Edgar Allan Post Bells, and then I was like, well, we cut you out of this one, but maybe we can use you in the next one. And then she got sick. And so we had to recast, which was, like, a crazy thing to do when we're in the middle of this uh, pandemic. You know, but it was one of those, uh, okay, well, we're going to do this new piece. Let's see how it goes. And uh, we went to different writers, most of whom said, I have no idea and I'm unable to write at this time. Uh, but there was a playwright named Suze Nolan, who, uh, great writer, wonderful to work with. And uh, she also had trepidation. She was like, I don't know. Uh, I'm not Edgar Allan Poe. He's a bit of a tough act to follow. <laughs> And I was like, no, no, Jen and I are encouraging people to create new work. We think it's as important to uh, have writers addressing our given circumstances right now, metaphorically. And so she thought about it and she thought about the apartment building that she lives in out in Brooklyn Heights. And as she would walk through the building, you know, on her way to the supermarket wearing a mask, she would hear families in their apartments with newborns. And she could only imagine what it must be like. I mean, she was a mother herself many, you know, like, um, what, seven, 18 years ago or something like that. But uh, she was remembering the early motherhood and she was imagining what it must be like to be a mother right now under these given circumstances. Now, when she wrote uh, Jumper, which is about postpartum, postpartum depression, mm-hmm. uh, we weren't directly addressing uh, coronavirus. We don't mention it in the piece we didn't want to make a piece that was like locked into coronavirus as a, as a part of the story. And yet it did inform the film tremendously because all of the characters are together alone in her, uh, in her piece. Uh, once again, I chose not to take a directing credit. I felt like it was one of those, uh, BBC plays for today or something like yeah. that, you know, where, uh, where it's like, we're, we're presenting a piece of writing and I really didn't want to get in the way of that. But some of the actors did ask me, they said, hey, can I have some direction? And for this, you know, for some of them, I did say, well, what if your character is like this? What if your relationships are like that? You know, uh, why don't you why don't you shoot it down by the creek behind your house? Like, that's a really good location. Uh, you know, we test, you know, we had the uh, Jen, Jen Plotsky, who plays Amy, did test shots in front of her window uh, to see what the effect would be. You know, so there was a little bit more directing in that one, but still, you know, I, I chose to tell them, you know, just uh, pick a good background and uh, and do the best you can. But more of them did ask, like they were, you know, a lot of people said, like, can I do multiple coverage? Like, can I do a medium shot and a close up? You know, uh, and that made me go to Jen and say, why don't you film yourself from three different angles because you're the main character in the piece. And like the, the uh, Todd Faulkner and Griffin Robert Faulkner, the father and son in the piece, they shot themselves in a two shot. And then they also did these kind of profile shots that we didn't use. 
like treating it as if it were a documentary where they would shoot a two shot. And then always when you see those documentaries, there's always like a, a B camera shooting a profile shot that they could always cut to. We chose not to use it because the father and the son sitting together on the couch felt so iconic. You could see people starting to get more creative with it. And we started to think that we should be more daring as filmmakers. We started to entertain the idea of what if we started introducing props? What if we started introducing um, characters who are not directly addressing the camera? So for the first Pablo Neruda film, the uh, uh, Charlotte Purser played a nurse, and it begins with her taking this mask off. And then it's kind of told, it becomes a story. The, the poem is really incredible. Pablo Neruda has given me great comfort during uh, coronavirus because he writes these incredibly beautiful poems filled with extremely powerful imagery. And it's talking about love in a really complicated, sometimes obsessive way um, with deep, deep yearning and a, and a deep, deep feeling of missing somebody. And that felt appropriate for our time. So when Charlotte played the nurse, that became a through line for the story. And she's looking at her phone and you can imagine, you know, an interaction taking place between her and the other characters who are interpreting the poem. And by this point, everybody had seen the bells and was kind of aware that they had to come up with cool backgrounds. So Lucas Hassel (laughs) played one of the roles, you know, chose to shoot at, in blue hour, which is a very deep blue twilight when there was like a really specific light hitting the building behind him, he knew it would be very cinematic. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, and, and, uh, a lot of the actors like wound up being bolder in their choices. They also knew that, uh, I mean, I told everybody when we were doing the poetry films that if you don't, if you don't cut it, I mean, if you don't, if, uh, if I don't, if I decide that we can't use you for any reason, you're going to get cut. And that inspired the actors to really go for it. You know, like they all tried really hard to create really compelling backdrops and performances and so on. But by the time we got to the second poem, we were saying, don't do it. You know, we started giving direction. Yeah. We start saying stuff like, don't let's do one where we're not having you look at the camera where you're having, you can look at a window, you can look at a letter you can look at uh, something else. You know, Nicole Grevy, wonderful actress, decided to look at her child, Griffin, uh, so that you got the feeling that they weren't talking to you, the viewer. Mm-hmm. They were talking to some unseen person that they were missing or thinking about uh, or yearning for or wanting to connect with and loving. Mm-hmm. Uh and that wound up having a, a separate power. And then when Ben McHugh, the editor, started taking it on, he got really bold with the use of dissolves going from one person to another. And it wound up feeling far more cinematic yeah. that, than just going from like one person to another person to another person. So the style uh, from film to film has evolved. And it has gotten to the point where we shot films that are in post right now that involved more complicated stuff where it involves like two actors in two different locations interacting with one another. And it involved like one of the writers, Tim Nolan, Sue's Nolan's husband sent us a script and it involved stuff that would be very easy to shoot were it not in the time of coronavirus. It involves a character pacing back and forth. She hears something and she hears the doorbell. She goes to the door. She sees the package. She brings it over to a table. She opens it up. She dumps it out. There are contents inside 
She has to call somebody else. She's walking around the room. So we can't shoot that in a locked down frame just facing somebody. Right. When we were casting that project, we made a list of every actor that we knew who had directed a film before or who had edited a film before because the role not only required a really wonderful actor, but it required someone who would understand the idea of film coverage, which means that you shoot a wide shot and a medium shot and a close-up. When the character opens the door and sees the box, we need to get an insert shot of the box. When it's dumped out, we need an insert shot of what's dumped out. And then when the two characters are talking on the phone, moving from one room to another, there are simple things like uh, eyeline where a character is looking either screen left or screen right. And for a phone call, if they're both looking screen left, it creates this weird feeling that they're looking at the same thing. Whereas if one of them is looking left and one of them is looking right, it creates the illusion they're looking at each other, Mm -hmm. which is not complicated if you're just shooting a regular old movie. Mm -hmm. But if you're communicating that between two actors saying, you have to look screen left, you have to look screen right, you know, we have to coordinate wardrobes so they're not wearing the same thing. We had to do like virtual location scouts where the actor is like videoing their apartment and I'm telling them, well, why don't you start at the kitchen counter and then you go to the door then back to the counter, and then you go over to the couch, and then maybe you can sit on the floor. And then for your character, you're going to start over here, but then you have to go to the dresser, and then maybe you lie down on the couch. So we, yeah, we did shot listing. They did test shots. They did test coverage. Like the act, you know, the co-star like films like five or six still shots of a teddy bear, like sitting where he would be sitting with proper eyeline, saying like, "Does this work for camera?" So it was, you know, like under normal circumstances, all of that stuff would be incredibly easy to do. But under these new given circumstances, it was challenging. That's a film called The Drop. And uh, we're doing our first rough assembly like next week. And, you know, we're working, we're going to be working with a composer. So like that one might take another couple of weeks before it's done. We did another, Suze wrote another film called uh, Hotline, which involves very tricky editing where like stuff is gradually revealed to the viewer another phone conversation. And one of the actors, even though like we did a rehearsal over zoom and I gave some notes and I gave directions and I gave notes over email and she still did like 99 separate clips, you know, basically she did 33 takes of each separate thing, you know, like she broke the scene into thirds. She did wide, medium close up shots of each one, but it was like, I mean, I was watching the dailies and the editor uh, ben was like, look, you got to narrow this down. I can't look at 99 clips for free because we're all doing these as part for art's sake. Right. So uh, so I had to like go in and narrow it down. And it was like watching Stanley Kubrick or David Fincher, where it's like you're watching every possible variation of a given scene. And I realized that because I'm not there on set with her, with Joy Schatz, who acted that role, you know, she decided to give me all the options. You know, even though I'd given notes and stuff like that, I'm really grateful, but it was a lot to get through, like look through 99 clips. And it reminded me that when you're on set, you don't have to, you can direct and you can really narrow down the selections like right there in real time. So, you know, a great filmmaker and producer named Natasha Australia and I've been toying with the idea of trying to find a way for me to be on Zoom when they're filming so that I can watch them and give notes between takes just to like narrow it down. So so we're getting more ambitious each time, and the process is getting more complicated each time. And we're talking about really sexy things like frame rate. If you're shooting at 30 frames per second and the other person is shooting at 24 frames per second, that's going to create a weird thing in the edit. You both have to be shooting at 30 or 24. 
you know, so stuff like that is all becoming part. It feels like the dawn of filmmaking and, uh, and we're going to keep trying to be more ambitious about them as time goes on. Well, that's, that's, that's all really exciting to hear about. And it, it actually covers a lot of ground as far as what I was going to ask you, uh, going back to the bells for a second, what was sure. it that made you choose that particular music to score to? Because you chose excerpts from uh, the score for the Tree of Life uh, as the underscore. Yeah, well, I've always loved that score, and uh, Tree of Life just has a haunting, strange, ethereal quality. Mm-hmm. And uh, Katie Dillon, the editor, tried it out because she and I both often use Terrence Malick temp tracks in our films uh like we did we used the temp track of terrence malick in, in Slapface feature and i think it really threw the producers off you know they were kind of like a horror movie and it's like oh, this is just the temp score you know but for the bells it felt like it drew the viewer in in a really magical haunting and scary way and it's also minimalist so it didn't interfere with the text you know it, it wound up supporting the text in a really uh profound way we thought Mm-hmm. No, and and it was absolutely the uh, right choice. It's like I. It's funny after I watched a Hidden Life earlier this year, I really started to re-listen to a lot of Malik's uh, the scores for Malik's work. And yeah, I mean, oh, it's 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 one of those things where it's like I'm 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 fascinated by like not to say that every score sounds the same, but it feels like what Malik uh, Malik seems to to encourage composers to go for sort of the same musical ideas and the same type of tones and stuff like that. And so yeah. you you hear composers like James Horner and Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard and then uh, Desplat uh, essentially, essentially doing similar things musically, but they're also out of they're also pushing themselves out of their own comfort zone from what they're using. I agree. Yeah, there is like something, there is something to that. And anything that pushes outside of the comfort zone is attractive to me. You know, it's like anything that feels singular and it isn't paid by the yard, you know, like feels very special and moving to me. Yeah. So with jumper, which is essentially, it's, it's essentially a play. Um, it is. And, and the thing that I was so struck by in watching that one is that not only could I imagine what this would look like on the stage, but it also felt like it almost felt like the way because of the nature of how you had to shoot it and how everybody shot their individual um, parts, it, it feels like a documentary, too. And the fact that I could, I I could sort of feel how it could work both ways is is a real tribute to just how how well the uh, how well first of all how good the text is, but also just how successfully you were able to you guys were able to uh, capture it and bring it to life. Yeah, well, first and foremost, Susan Nolan is a hell of a good writer. She's been a New York playwright for many, many, many years. She's had her plays put up all over the place, and uh, she has a great gift. And, uh, you know, there's a temptation to not want to get in the way of the power of her words and let the performers do the work. 
but um but yeah she comes from the theater she's only written um one film that we've made and uh like before jumper mm-hmm. and then uh and but most of it's been um for an audience on stage but uh the other person that i thought about was a documentary filmmaker errol morris mm-hmm. who made the thin line and the uh, that really powerful documentary about robert mcnamara uh and uh, his films frequently have or will always have the subject talking right into the lens which creates an intimacy between the subject mm-hmm. and the viewer of the film it's as if the uh the people in those errol morris movies are talking to you and uh, and since the audience for Jumper is predominantly at home watching it either on their phones or their computers, then they are having this weird direct relationship between the actor and themselves that is very frighteningly similar these days to the Zoom calls and the um, the messenger chats and Skypes and so on that we're all used to right now. The only difference is that Jumper is a controlled narrative and you're stuck in this a uh, story that's moving inexorably towards doom mm-hmm. and uh and because the the viewer these days has a relationship to their phones and their computers it, it felt like the right time to tell jumper in this way and and um and it felt like viewers responded to being spoken to directly uh which creates a, a relationship between the actor and the audience and the character in the audience which is similar to but different than theater well, you talked about it, you you talked about it a little bit, especially with this uh, next uh, project that you guys are working on. What has been one of the biggest uh, challenges when it comes to editing these together, and how how is it how how have you been able to make certain choices when it comes to especially with the uh, poetic recitations uh, choices in who who, how the performances um, sort of blend into one another. Okay, well, you, it, we, we learn each time. We always gain new technical knowledge. So when we did the bells, we didn't relay the notes of like shoot at you know, 1080p or 4K at 24 frames per second. So everybody was shooting different frame rates and some people shot horizontally and some people shot vertically. And it all cut together, you know, but like, but it didn't feel like unified in its form. So by the time we did Jumper, we had a list, you know, we said to everybody, it's like, here are the technical requirements. Please choose an interesting uh, backdrop, you know, like avoid these sorts of things and so on and so forth. Uh, The technical challenges have only gotten greater and greater the more that we go. Because the more ambitious you get with these things, the more you realize that this is not these films are not being made in a traditional format. Like, you know, when you get together with a crew of six or a crew of 30 or a crew of 60, the entire form is different than it's like, than if it's like one actor with a cell phone or an actor and a partner with a cell phone. Cause it creates a whole new dynamic. You know, now you're, uh, you're, you're doing everything yourself, um, which requires a lot of effort. You know, especially if you're going to shoot multiple angles, mm-hmm. you know, you might be shooting your scene nowadays from like 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., you know, because you have to shoot like 
three to 15 different angles, you know, for the stories that we're telling. As we get more ambitious, the, the onus on the actor becomes heavier. You know, I just had somebody uh, wind up passing on a project, you know, like they were going to do it. They were sitting with the script for two weeks and then they finally said, like, this is too much for me. I can't, you know, I, I just, it's going to require too much time and effort to, to shoot all these shots and I just don't want to do it. You know, which I understood because, you know, I can't really argue with anybody not wanting to do it because if you're an actor and you show up in a movie pre-pandemic, all you have to do is understand your character mm. and play the part. You know, play the part as truthfully as you can opposite the other performers. With the requirements now, you have to play your part as truthfully as you can and there's the added uh, act of being a director of photography mm-hmm. and paying attention to sound, you know, like uh, many of the actors have been really attuned to that. And they say they'll be acting in the scene and then an ambulance will go by and they'll say holding for sound and then they'll back up and do the lines again. So these are the interesting requirements required of the actor under these given circumstances that, uh, and it really, really helps if they've made films before because then they they have an, they'll have an understanding of what the job requires, and then you know like if they understand good lighting that helps, you know and if they don't understand lighting then you have to have a conversation with them about it like well what if um, like we had to do tests for one of the shoots where it was like can we see what it looks like with natural lighting through the window can we see what it looks like with the fluorescent lighting on can we see what it looks like with a combination of those things. All right, shut the fluorescence off. Off, we'll go with the natural light. Uh, or that lamp looks really good. Can you play that lamp a little closer to your face? You know, so it's it's not easy. Like the requirements on the actor are much heavier yeah. than they would be normally, and it requires them to think like a filmmaker, like a film director, like a cinematographer, like a sound person. They have to do their own hair, and makeup. You know, so um, so I don't envy their tasks. Once it gets into the editing room. The hardest part for that has been all these actors are work, all of the, everybody's working for free on these things. You know, it's art for art's sake, mm-hmm. but there are limits to art for art for art's sake. You know, the editor may say, "Look, I'll I'll do this, but you have to simplify it. You have to make selects, yeah, and then I'll cut together what your selections are, or do a rough assembly based on that, and then go from there." You know, so. Um, and then, you know, the editor for these poetry films, like the first Neruda film, she cut together three different versions of the film. Like one was more like the bells. One was like really intercutting hardcore between all the characters. One was like it, it focused it on the nurse and it allowed certain things to repeat as if she were ruminating on certain thoughts. And that was the version that we kept working on mm-hmm. because it created, it created a character and a drama yeah. that wasn't there before. You know, and we've got a couple of these poetry films in post where they're trying to find their form. Like there's one in particular where everybody did direct address, but there's no unifying concept to it. And we we're wondering if music might provide a unifying concept or turning it into black and white might be a unifying concept. We haven't cracked the code yet, but, uh, you know, we're still we're still struggling. So these things, you know, it's it's not as simple as making a sandwich. Yeah. You know, there is like a certain like Jumper was more straightforward because. Yeah, the script and a form, but even that we wound up cutting out dialogue and cutting out scenes, making it shorter. 
you know, uh, only because, you know, like, it's like, all right, we get the point. We don't need to explain that again. You know, we can just cut that dialogue, uh, which, you know, is pretty brutal on the writers. He was like, you cut my favorite line. And I'm like, well, you know, that's showbiz. Uh, you know, it's a mercenary business and we are all mercenaries. Uh, but, um, but that's just how it goes. So, um, it's been an enjoyable process, but far more time consuming than you'd like, than, (laughs) you know, than you'd assume. Yeah. And I, I can, it, it makes a lot of sense that you would, uh, especially going forward as the, as you've gotten more ambitious and more complex in terms of what the actors are responsible for on their end, going for actors who with experience with direction and, and, and making films in general, because then you there, then there's not quite as much to have to explain to them in before they go off and do that. Uh, Have you had, especially with Jumper, which is more of a uh, stage play, um, have you, like, how how did, re- how did rehearsals work, and how did, um, how did the actual, you know, you, you said you didn't have to, you, people did come to you for direction on that one. How, how did that process work out? Did you have, like, workshops to, workshop sessions reading read throughs to uh to sort of get everybody on the same page or how did that work well it helped that we knew all the actors like every single one of them was handpicked mm-hmm. like it's the kind of you know for jumper we just selected actors that we knew were going to be extraordinary actors like the best actors because all it is is their faith so it's like you know we need all the people that we know can deliver like every single one of them, there cannot be a weak performance in this ensemble. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet for that one, we didn't do rehearsal, but like I did, you know, some actors asked for notes and one of only one of them, like Bob Shelley, who plays the, uh, the guy commuting, he was like, you got any notes for me? And I was like, nah, you figure it out, Bob. <laughs> uh, and it was only because I've known Bob for, I think we've been working together for what, like at least 10 years. Uh, and I know what Bob is capable. I know he's an extraordinary and subtle and nuanced actor. And I really wanted to see what he would come up with without me telling him. And he felt enormous pressure. He was like, God, I, he didn't tell me what he wanted. And now I feel this need to make him happy and please him. I don't want to disappoint Jeremiah. So what he did was he played the role and he gave different variations in performance, particularly his final moment of realization he offered us many different interpretations of that, like all the different levels of understanding. Like he gave us takes where the character was completely oblivious and had no realization of what had happened to a startling realization that made him feel strange and made him feel, that made him reevaluate the entire situation. Uh, so I was really And Bob has directed films before too. So like I, I knew that he would give us uh, choices uh, and then, and then Bob in particular was, was, was great because you could sift through and the directing part was like, all right, what version of Bob do I want to play with in the sandbox? Mm. But on that one, we didn't rehearse, you know, it was, everybody was kind of creating their piece in isolation and had no interaction with the other. 
they all just knew, but they knew who each other were, you know, they, they all kind of knew the other actors. So they could kind of create assumptions being like, all right, well, I know that like Bob knew that Christina Doikas was going to be in it. You know, um, Jen Plotsky knew that Thaddeus Daniels was playing her husband, you know, so they all kind of knew who the performer was mm-hmm. on their own in terms of creating the inner life. But I decided not to do that again. Once we got to, um, these new films that we have in post, the ones that required blocking and, and, uh, shooting it more like a traditional movie, we rehearsed them all. They were, we rehearsed all of them. We did zoom rehearsal with the writer present with me and the producer listening to them. And then we would do rehearsals, developing the characters. And then we would run the scene more than once. I would give notes and then the writer would confide in me and say, well, what do you think about doing these things this way? And then I would give the actors more notes. Mm. So after Jumper, we decided that we were going to do rehearsals for these pieces, for the narrative pieces. For the poetry pieces, we were going to give them instructions, but leave them to their own devices. Yeah. Um, but the narrative pieces, we were never, you know, it was like, we're never again going to do one where we don't rehearse it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that Jumper didn't go great. I mean, they were extraordinary actors, yeah. but... Um, but now we're in situations where we're working with actors who we don't know, who I haven't worked with before, you know, like, like in, um, hotline, there's an actor I've never worked with before in my life who the writer referred. We were looking for someone who would be a great actor opposite Joyce Chats, who we knew. And, uh, we found this uh, wonderful actor named, uh, Chip Rabbit, uh, great actor who just graduated from the actor's, uh, studio program. And he was wonderful. But we didn't know him. He had to, he had to audition. Mm-hmm. So he had to send in a tape and audition and be chosen opposite other actors. We picked him. And then we had to rehearse with him. And I had no idea what he was like to work with. But he wound up being lovely and wonderful and really game to play. Uh, so that's what we've been doing now. Zoom has been the preferred method for rehearsals. And, uh, and then, you know, we follow up with emails and phone calls and discussions after that. And then before the actor will shoot that day, they often will take photos of themselves being like, all right, here's different shots. Like, do you agree with them? Is my eyeline good? And I will sign off and say yes. Okay. Yeah, I was I was kind of curious about that in terms of how, I mean, obviously interaction, email over email and uh, Zoom and stuff like that beforehand. But I was kind of curious if on the day that they shoot their end if they were how how they approached if they approached you with like here's what i'm planning on doing and yeah that that makes a lot of sense and yeah with jumper actually it does kind of make sense that because of the fact that all of the care all of the all of the characters are really even though they have connections to the overall narrative they they aren't speaking to one another. It does kind of make sense that apart from the, uh, how close you are with, uh, all of the actors, how familiar you are with all of the actors, there wouldn't really be as much of a need to do a big rehearsal with that because of the fact that you don't have to necessarily worry about character interactions and make sure, making sure this character is, you know, understand, you know, understanding how these characters uh, interact with each other, getting that dynamic right and all of that. So, yeah, it does actually kind of make sense. And especially as you're getting more ambitious with uh, these projects, it also makes sense that, yeah, 
especially as you're bringing in people you're not as familiar with, yeah, rehearsals is play play a much bigger process, part of the process. Yeah, but you're right though. Jumper, they were making a film. They were all in it together, but they were all filming alone. Yeah, and uh, and the only relationship they had was with the person they were speaking to uh, in the in the lens. Yeah. You know, whoever they chose to be speaking with, which frequently was, you know, they, they all naturally treated it as if it were a documentary. Um, I mean, because obviously we don't necessarily have a specific idea as to when uh, this this time will be over in regular filmmaking uh, as or as close to regular filmmaking process that we're used to. I will be able to resume. Is there anything from these experiences that you see as being able to transfer over into making a film a, in a more traditional manner? I'll be curious to see how that unfolds. You know, it's, um, it's a very, very different experience uh, making these Mm -hmm. to making uh, the narrative films that I'm used to directing. Uh, and I'm curious to see how they do inform stuff. You know, like, I think that we're informed by our work in all sorts of different ways. I know that the the first film that I made many years ago that I thought was any good was part of a 48-hour film challenge. I learned so much by doing that. I learned to trust my intuitive instincts far more than I had ever before. And I applied that to all the work that I ever did ever since. And I traced it all back to that 48-hour film. I learned more on that than all my years in film school and all the films I'd made until that point, there was something about the speed and the energy of making a film in 48 hours that required me to never second guess myself. And it led to something personal and authentic and it felt truthful. So I didn't realize that it had affected me so much until I'd made a couple other films. And I realized that the stuff I'd learned was from the 48 hour film. So these pandemic films, I'm sure that we're all growing so much out of it. How could we not? Uh, but I think it will reveal itself over time how it affects our work when we return to the possibility of creating work in a more traditional format, however that will be. I think that will be a new experience, uh, at least in the early going, because we're, you know, like there's all these rules that all the studios are creating right now and figuring out how social distancing applies and if we need to be quarantined, like how, how makeup is going to work and how, day players are going to work and so on, you know, so, you know, I'm, it is possible that these pandemic films that we're making on our cell phones and DSLRs and so on could very well inform the work that we do next, Mm -hmm. but like that's going to reveal itself, uh, in the doing of the thing, uh, as my friend Lindsay cat likes to say, the doing, the doing of the thing is the thing. Uh, so we'll find out if it's going to apply or not, but I can tell you right now that it is uh, different, mm-hmm. and you can't apply the rules of traditional filmmaking to this exactly. It's very inexact science that we're still discovering. In many ways, like doing these pandemic films, weirdly feels like the dawn of filmmaking, where it's like, mm-hmm. can we do a shot of an actor stationary? Can we move the camera? Can we? Do coverage? Can we intercut from one actor to another? Can we do a phone call scene? Uh, uh, you know, 
And, and, you know, it's like, and we're all raising the bar for each other. Like there's a wonderful horror filmmaker named Marcus Levine, brilliant guy who's doing a horror feature with a great cast, including um, Harry Alexander from George Romero's Day of the Dead, wonderful actress like that, are in his pandemic feature, which is one of the first pandemic horror features that's coming out. I don't know if it's something specifically about the pandemic, but I'm sure it's informed by it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's, he's a great director, and I was really excited by the fact that he is creating a feature-length version using the tools that we have available at hand. Mm-hmm. So I was like, so I, I was inspired by that. Marcus inspires me a lot. Anyway, he's one of those great friends of mine who's also a competitor. <laughs> you know, uh, I really love him very much, and uh, and uh, I'm really inspired by the fact that he took that leap and was like, let's climb the big mountain using six to eight actors with name talent, all of whom are game on for doing this sort of thing. Now, granted, he'd worked with all these name actors before. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, but they were all gamed for the experiment and to play. I mean, all these actors want to act and they want to play make believe. Mm-hmm. So I did talk to Jen Plosky, my co-producer on these, and I was like, "We gotta stoke some fires under our writers <laughs> and see if we can get them to create some feature-length versions of these films because I think that would be the next mountain to climb. I mean, that would create a whole new level of ambition for these pieces. Now that we know we can shoot a scene." You know, why can't we shoot many scenes? Why can't we shoot a series? Why can't we shoot with the same characters over and over, like a web series? Why can't we put those things together and do them as a feature length? Yeah. You know, it could be episodic. It could not. We'll see. But I think that it would be really, if I were an actor, I would be excited about, like, following the story arc of a character over time. Uh, So these are things that have been in our minds while we've been... um, doing these experiments as they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll find out. I mean, you know, as long as the pandemic goes on, I'll keep making them as long as I feel inspired to do so. <laughs> Once I start to feel like we're grinding our wheels in place, I'll stop doing it for a while because there's no reason to do something if you're just repeating yourself yeah. over and over again, yeah. which, I, which I fear we started to with some of the poetry films that are in post. Mm-hmm. Um, they started they started to feel a little similar to what we've done before. Like the two Neruda films, that I send you, we kind of hit this zenith, and I am have concerns that we're starting to repeat ourselves with the poetry films, which is why we're moving more hardcore into original narrative work that is more challenging for us, that requires more from us and the actors. And I think the only logical step after that would, to, would be to do what Marcus is doing, which is to tell a larger, more ambitious story, and we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Gangway. I will say this too. It's funny that like we're in post on the slap face feature right now, which was shot traditionally, mm-hmm. you know, it was shot in New York. We have like name actors in it. We had a crew. We have like a three week shooting schedule, pre-production, the whole nine yards. We're in post on that. And I asked the editor, I was like, what's this like being in post during this pandemic? And she, who I've worked, I've, known, I've worked with her for a number of years. She said, yeah, not exactly the same as uh, every other movie I've ever worked on. The only difference is that her husband is at home also using their bandwidth because he's the assistant editor for a news network. So like the bandwidth is a little slower between the two of them, but she's yeah. still editing our feature and nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, you know, like, you know, it's funny to be cutting a very traditional narrative film during this pandemic 
which also gives us all something to look forward to. I am so profoundly grateful that this movie that I had wanted to make for 10 years got made before the world turned upside down. I'm extremely grateful. I'm extremely grateful we were got to, we got to be able to work with an amazing casting crew. And you know, one of the actors in that movie is this actor named Dan Hedaya. Mm. And Dan was in a movie called uh, Blood Simple, which is a movie that I saw when I was 12 years old. And it was one of those movies that inspired me to make movies. So I was really happy that Dan was in our movie because it was the experience of getting to work with an actor mm-hmm. who um, who inspired you know one of those people who inspired you. And I think he was really moved by the fact that Blood Simple was so important to me. I mean, I'm sure I've heard, I'm sure you've heard it before, but um, it was was one of those things that engendered trust between Dan and I was that he knew that I wanted him to be in the movie. Yeah, he knew it was important to me having him in the film. And I was really happy and grateful that he connected with the themes of that face, the self-loathing of some of these characters and the, uh, the deep pain that carries them through their lives. He understood the whole movie and felt like he was part of the larger mosaic. So I was incredibly happy that Dan was in our movie uh, and that we were able to shoot this whole thing before everything changed. I, I, I'll never not be grateful that we got it in the can before things changed, because if we were about to shoot, I was about to shoot a feature and it got pushed indefinitely right before the shit hit the fan with right. this pandemic. And I, and I was really sad. I was kind of like, Oh man, I wanted to go out to the West coast and shoot this action horror movie with really great people. A lot of the, a lot of the folks from Slapface were coming on board, you know, but I also had to acknowledge that like, if that shoe got pushed, I wouldn't be heartbroken. Yeah. Whereas with Slapface, if, if that got pushed, my heart would be broken. Mm-hmm. And you and I would be having a very different conversation right now because I don't know how I would feel in my art making if something that I loved that profoundly was taken away. Yeah. You know, I would experience probably pain and despair and heartbreak and be going through that journey of grief and the death of uh, something that you love. Yeah. But thankfully that is in post right now. And because that's in post right now, it gives me something to look forward to. I love working in post on that movie. I love all the people. I love my producers and the editor. They're all great people. The composer is extraordinary. But um, but that does put me in a place where I'm optimistic and cheerful. Mm-hmm. And that has, I think, enabled me to rally my friends and be able to make these pandemic films and inspire hope in them to say that we can figure out ways to make art no matter what our given circumstances are. Yeah. And if we're stuck indoors or if we're stuck in with limitations and uh, social distancing and so on, let's incorporate that into our art and speak to the times that we're living in. And that feels as important to me right now as, uh, as navigating post-production on, on Slapface, which has a different and equally special meaning for me. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask you about uh Slapface and post-production on that. So I'm, I'm glad that you went into it. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know how I missed the fact that you had Dan Hedaya in in that movie. And it's funny. I actually just rewatched Clueless where he plays Alicia's Silverstone's father. So this so morning. <laughs> he's, one, he's one of those great dad performances in oh, those yeah. teen uh, high school movies. You know, on par with Harry Dean Stanton and Pretty in Pink. You know, it's like a great character actor who invests so much truth and meaning into the dad yeah. and Clueless. 
Yeah, Dan was um, all right. So we got him because, um, um, well, I don't know. You know, it's like the producer said, "How do you feel about Dan Hadaya?" And I said something really smart, like, uh, "Dan Hadaya will never do this movie." <laughs> you know, uh, I just thought we were too low budget, and I didn't want to get my hopes up. But then he um, he said yes, and we were very fortunate that like. You know, in the days that followed him saying yes, you know, he was at film festivals and stuff like that, talking to people, saying, they, you know, they would say, what are you up to next? And he'd say, I'm working on this movie called Slapface. <laughs> I was very fortunate because a couple of people who knew me said to Dan, oh, that director is great. That crew is amazing. The other actors are wonderful. You're going to have a great experience. Mm-hmm. And that happened to Dan a couple of times, like the week before he showed up to film with us, which really made me feel good because when he showed up, he treated it as if you know, he was going to be doing something that he knew was going to be a good experience. He just kind of walked in with that attitude that, that he knew that he was wanted and loved by us and, uh, and he didn't want to let us down. So yeah. he came in ready to play and he was so great to work with. Like what a, he's 79 years old and, uh, and, and will throw himself into any situation fearlessly you know, bravely, like you can, it's a monster movie with a lot of violence in it. He was not afraid of any of that stuff. He was like, I'm yours. I'll do whatever you want. I understand what you're doing and I'll act in whatever given circumstance you want me to play. So he was asked to do stuff that was really challenging for a 79 year old guy. And I thought he was so such an actor's actor about it. He was there for the movie and he was there for us. And he had a really good experience, and we had a good experience with him. I, I I would call him a friend after the after the shoot. Like while we were working on it, it felt like we'd known each other a really long time. And you know that when you meet people like that, it's really quite special. Yeah. Uh, I really loved him. I and you know since then he's shown me a lot of his paintings. He's an artist. You know, it's like he's uh, he's a really deep and thoughtful and complicated, wonderful person. So uh, and those are the kind of people that I like gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. People that are. Um, that are interesting, fascinating, and not one-dimensional. Dan is an incredibly complicated, conflicted man. But I also love him very much because of that, because he puts all of that into his work in a really moving way. That's why his performances are also mm-hmm. great and memorable in the work that he does. Well, that's excellent. And just one more reason to look forward to that feature, because I did love the short. And Thank when you. you first told me that you were making a feature, Alvy, I got really excited about that. Um, that's probably a pretty good place to leave off. So Jeremiah, thank you very much for doing this interview. And it's great to talk to you about these topics. And, uh, I can't wait to see what else you're doing during this time. And then with uh slap face in the future. Well, let's keep the conversation, Brian, uh, going, let's keep the conversation going, Brian. It feels like <laughs> every time we talk to each other, we pick up where we left off. So, yeah. um, Let's uh, let's just keep that conversation alive, and uh, I'll catch up with you when uh, we have more to talk about. Yeah, it sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you for taking this time, Brian. It's always super good oh, talking no with you. Thank you. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Kip for joining me today on the podcast. Uh, it's always fun to talk to him, and I'm really looking forward to uh, what he's got coming up as far his, as his further quarantine films as well as the uh, feature for Slapface. 
which if you haven't had a chance to see it, you can read my review of Sonic Cinema. I really enjoyed it, and I can't wait to see how he expands it into the future. That's it for this time on the Sonic Cinema podcast. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com, the Sonic Cinema podcast YouTube channel, and hopefully by the time that this is uh, published, other uh, outlets, maybe including iTunes and Spotify and other places. Uh, thank you very much. This is uh, there's going to be a lot more coming up this this year, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, this is Brian Scuttle, and I hope you have a good day. <laughs>